Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Burns. Today, as Russia's invasion of Ukraine continues, we look at how far Vladimir Putin is willing to go in the face of strengthened sanctions and anti-war protests on the streets of dozens of Russian cities today. China's support is an important part of Russia's calculations for this invasion. So what does China stand to gain, and just how solid is that bond? But first, it is a very tense time for many Canadians with family in Ukraine, watching from afar as more and more flee cities under attack to try to make it to safer ground. It's been a day of violent shock, condemnation, new sanctions against Russia after its invasion of neighboring Ukraine sparked what is the greatest security crisis in Europe since the Cold War. After months of military buildup, failed negotiations and Russians threat, Russian threats 24 hours ago now, President Vladimir Putin launched an invasion entering Ukraine from the north, east and south, seemingly targeting the capital, Kyiv, as well as the cities of Kharkiv, Odessa, Mariupol and others. Air and missile strikes rained down on cities and military bases last night before tanks rolled in. There are reports of more loud explosions in Kyiv this evening. In a statement to the nation tonight, Ukraine's president confirmed 137 people had been killed in the first day of the invasion. Vladimir Zelensky is vowing to stay in the Ukrainian capital. Men aged 18 to 60 under martial law also can't leave the country tonight. Many, though, are choosing to leave. The UN estimates already more than 100,000 people have fled their homes, moving into neighboring countries such as Moldova, Romania, Poland, and Hungary to escape the conflict. In the capital, Kyiv, today, traffic leaving the city of nearly 3 million was bumper to bumper, while there were long lineups to board trains out of the area. That was the sound at the train station in Kiev today as people waited. Photos of those still there, though, show many sheltered in areas such as subway stations, bomb shelters and basements. Photos reminiscent of the Blitz in London way back. Canada and other allies began imposing more severe economic sanctions on Russia today in response to its military strike against Ukraine, targeting Russian banks and oligarchs, imposing technology export bans, but for now, not targeting Russia's vital energy sector. Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland says Russian President Putin must face consequences for invading a sovereign country. Today, he cements his place in the ranks of the reviled European dictators who caused such carnage in the 20th century. The response by Canada and our allies will be swift and it will bite. And here is U.S. President Joe Biden announcing new sanctions as well. Putin chose this war, and now he and his country will bear the consequences. Today, I'm authorizing additional strong sanctions and new limitations on what can be exported to Russia. Prime Minister Boris Johnson of Britain also says they will impose a new set of sanctions that will harm Russia's economy and disrupt Putin's, quote, war machine. These powers will enable us totally to exclude Russian banks from the UK financial system, which is, of course, by far the largest in Europe, stopping them from accessing sterling and clearing payments through the UK. But for so many, what's happened in Ukraine in the last 24 hours is not about 
sort of diplomacy or sanctions. It's about family and it's about ties to a homeland. Uh, this invasion hits very close to home for many, including here in Canada. It has been a dramatic and difficult 24 hours for many. One of them is the Krochenko family. Bodan Krochenko played, or Bohan Krochenko rather, played an important role in the Ukrainian government in the early years of independence in the 1990s. He's a former director of the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies at the University of Alberta and is now dean of the Graduate School of Development at the University of Central Asia in Kyrgyzstan. Tamara Krachenko is an assistant professor of public administration at the University of Victoria. They are nearly 10,000 kilometers apart tonight, but we bring father and daughter together to talk to us. Welcome to the show, both of you. Thank you for having us. Uh, I guess, Bohan, I'll start with you because I know you've been paying, you know, you've watched this unfold for many, many, many years. Are you surprised by the scale and scope of what's happened in the last 24 hours? Yes, I am. Um, if you watched Putin's hallucinatory speech, uh, the, the person has really gone mad. He was and his speech motivating the attack on Ukraine had nothing to do with NATO, just a vitriolic attack on the fact that Ukraine does not have the right to exist as a country. And the goal is really its occupation and becoming a satrap of, uh, of Russia. Nobody thought uh, very, I mean, people were skeptical that he would launch an all out war on multiple fronts and Ukrainians being inv invaded from the north, from the east and from the south. Nobody thought that he would be crazy enough to launch the, a, a large land war reminiscent of the Second World War on continental Europe, um, in continental Europe in 2021. But it is, uh, it says something of the nature of the Putin regime that he uh, has decided to do this. And now Ukraine faces the fight of its life. Tamara, I know you've been here, and uh, I'm in Victoria alongside you, actually. I know you've been here watching uh, things unfold, uh, you know, some 8,000 kilometers away. How difficult has it been? Uh, and how are your how are your family there tonight? Um, my family are on the move, trying to get out of Kyiv. My sister and her family, she has three young children. They are trying to get to western Ukraine where it might be safer. We understand that in Kyiv, there were missile strikes starting uh, basically at 5 a.m. Uh, and that there is a large airstrike planned that they plan a ground invasion and they want to take the city and remove our democratically elect, you know, Ukraine's de democratically elected leadership is the goal. And then to take the rest of the country within 10 days. That is their battle plan as they have articulated it. Tamara, I mean, I know so many of us have watched. I spent time in Kiev in 2014 and in the East as well, in Donetsk and in Mariupol and Odessa and those areas. I think, and I was speaking to people in Kiev earlier this week and even last week, and, and the idea was that while everyone was surprised, there had been sort of this low rumbling of war for so long that it caught people off guard when it actually happened at this scale. Is that the impression that, that you have? Yes, and, and yes, and yet I agree. Anyone paying attention has heard this, dehumanizing language that the Kremlin uses and their propaganda machine. And we all knew what that was. It was to make it okay to kill Ukrainians and to deny their existence. We've been hearing this dehumanizing language and, and this is astonishing to have a full-scale invasion. And yet 
you hear that language and you knew it was for a reason. And now we see why. Bohan, one thing that's always really struck me, and I, I remember being in, at Maidan in 2014 and thinking when, when the former president Yanukovych, a, a Putin crony, essentially fled and people ransacked, went to his home and found all his riches, that perhaps democracy, liberal democracy in Ukraine is the one thing that Vladimir Putin refuses to accept. And I know you were integral in building up those early institutions of the Ukrainian government in the early 90s. Do you feel like Ukraine's success has put it in a situation that Vladimir Putin cannot tolerate? Yes, Ukraine has succeeded with all of its faults, a democratic society with political pluralism and respect of human rights. And it is an, the exact opposite of the sharp authoritarian trends that have occurred in Russia, especially in the last little while. And there was a, you know, there was a very interesting interview with an average couple just a couple, just a couple of minutes ago in Zaporizhia, which is an industrial town in the east. And they said, well, what do you think about this invasion? And they said, we cannot conceive of a situation where we want to live under Putin's authoritarian regime. We'd rather go down fighting than have our future robbed for us for another generation. And so it's what is now happening are uh, troop movements, physical troop movements, because ultimately you have to have boots on the ground to occupy Ukraine. And this is where the, blood, the, the battles are going to be very bloody. It's one thing to do airstrikes to take, out, um, to take out some military installations. And by the way, uh, Ukrainian, the Ukrainian armed forces were prepared for this. So when they attacked airfields, there were no airplanes there. They had already moved it. And now comes the hard part, and this is not going to be a walk through the park for the Russians. And uh, I think it's going to be, it's going to be awful. They they want to obviously attack Kiev, and uh, they've already uh, put some paratroops down. But you put, this is going to be a if, if that happens, it's going to be a fight street by street. The Ukrainian population is armed. There is a massive territorial army. So the, Ukraine is not going to be a, a, a pushover. But unfortunately, there are going to be very, very significant casualties. In eastern Ukraine, where the attacks are happening, and in general, across the borders, they have not managed to penetrate more than five kilometers into, into the country, except for a couple of places where paratroopers took over uh, Chernobyl uh, nuclear station where that horrific accident in 1986 occurred. But the Ukrainian troops are obviously not going to uh, try and make an attempt to take back Chernobyl. They're holding the, the staff of the Chernobyl nuclear station as hostage because that risks uh, 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 an absolute catastrophe of another nuclear ex explosion. Uh, there is going to be very fierce resistance, and it's in many cases you are hearing very, very heroic stories. We're discussing the situation in Ukraine tonight with Bohan Krochenko. His daughter Tamara Krochenko Bohan is in Kyrgyzstan. Uh, Tamara is here in Victoria. We're speaking about, and there is family in Kiev tonight. Uh, Tamara, I want to ask you just about first of all, uh, have you had an update from your sister recently, and are they okay? And also, just the reaction that you've seen across Canada so far from the Ukrainian community coming out and and uh, supporting each other and and the homeland. 
Yeah, um, I last heard from her an hour ago. They are driving to find safety in western Ukraine and away from, well, it's hard to say, away from, mm-hmm. looks like everything's being hit now, but away from Kyiv, which it looks like there's going to be a major onslaught. Um, and I won't rest until I know she's, you know, somewhere safe. But And as for the solidarity in Canada, what solidarity we have, and not just from the Canadian-Ukrainian community, I have to say we've had incredible solidarity because Canada as a nation of people from so many different places that understand and recognize and have fled from authoritarianism, imperialism, and oppression. And we've also had such beautiful solidarity from First Peoples, and uh, it's just remarkable, and it's it's wonderful. It's very heartening, and Ukraine needs the support, and they need faith um, and belief that they will keep up the fight. Don't don't think that this is over. They're putting up a really hard fight. So that support and solidarity is so important. Bohan, what, what's the atmosphere been like in Kyrgyzstan, another former Soviet socialist republic, uh, far to the east, but still, has there been any reaction at all to what's unfolded in Ukraine? Oh, I, and I was going to ask you what... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I think the most important thing to, uh, to notice is that in Russia yesterday, there were demonstrations in 40 cities with thousands of people coming up. Now, to demonstrate in Russia requires considerable courage, because when you go out and demonstrate, you are guaranteed that you are going to be arrested and incarcerated for at least 15, 20 days, and that's a black mark on you. They can dismiss you from university and from your job. I think this act of courage, especially Russian young people, but understand that people have, that Putin's regime has robbed them of any future is really, really something to be appreciated. It's one thing to go out and demonstrate in London, but in one in, in the 40 towns, when you go out and demonstrate, you're really pulling the future of your, you're putting your future on the line. And I, I think we should all appreciate the courage of these people. We certainly saw a lot of arrests as well today for those who uh, braved uh, braved the authorities to make their voices heard. Uh, Bohan, what do you make of the sanctions that came out today? Do you think it's anywhere near enough? Well, I think this is the beginning and we'll see how they bite. Uh, the West can't do very much other than sanctions. But the most important way in which Ukraine, the most important assistance that Ukraine needs now is actually help to protect its airspace and, uh, and, and missiles that can, can, then, that can shoot, shoot down airplanes. Uh, this is a weakness of the Ukrainian uh, armed forces. Uh, that would be the most, that would be the most important assistance possible. And there are, of course, some more crippling sanction, sanctions that could be in place. Um, anything that, that makes Russia pay a very heavy economic penalty for this outrageous act is welcome, but the sanctions will take some time to uh, to impact, and some of them are going to have quite 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 serious consequences at personal levels, as the children of Russian oligarchs studying at elite universities have to pack up their bag and go home. Tamara and Bohan, I didn't ask earlier whether you had spoken to each other recently, or at least in the last uh, little while. Is there anything you wanted to say to each other? We have about two minutes left. I was going to leave it to you for father and daughter. Uh, well, let's, I mean, we have this very awkward time change. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we catch up with one another, but um, we're going to 
yeah, Lothan is getting up. I'm putting the kids to bed and let's chat because mm-hmm. we have a lot to catch up on. He takes Absolutely. the night shift, I take the day shift or vice versa. <laughs> in, in checking in on your on your daughter and your sister. Oh, in I was TV. supposed to go to Kiev this Sunday. Um, right. And of course, now that airspace is closed and the war is on, I can't go to Kiev, but I intend to go as soon as it's uh, as soon as it's possible. Well, I thank you both so much for joining me tonight uh, from 10,000 kilometers apart. Tamara uh, Krochenko here on Vancouver Island, uh, Bohan Krochenko in Bishkek in Kyrgyzstan. Um, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts tonight. Our thoughts, of course, are with your sister. Um, thank you so much. And you. Thank you. Thank you so much. So much. Good, night. Good night, both of you. Good night. Well, Russia today continues to defend its actions in Ukraine, its invasion of Ukraine. The Russian embassy here in Canada released a pretty scathing letter. Uh, Russia's foreign minister continued to defend his country as well, saying it was a preemptive move against an imminent attack by Ukraine upon Russia. Uh, foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov says the attack was a defensive measure and called for diplomacy with the West to avoid escalation. As we uh, take the measures announced by the president uh, to ensure the security of the country and the Russian uh, people, uh, we certainly would always be uh, ready for a dialogue which will bring us back to justice and the principles of the United Nations Charter. Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister, uh, Russia's foreign minister. Meanwhile, Russians took to the street in fairly significant numbers today in more than 50 cities to voice their opposition to the invasion of Ukraine. It's estimated some 1,700 people were arrested, including nearly 1,000 in Moscow alone as police put a stop to it. I believe we have some audio of that as well. Again, it takes a lot of courage to protest in Russia. Uh, having witnessed it myself, it takes a lot of courage to go out on the street. So many people today, again, some 1,700 arrested, nearly 1,000 in Moscow alone. So has Vladimir Putin underestimated the opposition to this invasion? Will it last? Does he care? Joining me now is Catherine Stoner, a senior fellow at the Stanford University Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies and author of Res- Russia Resurrected. Welcome back. We spoke very recently when we talked about what if, and now I suppose we're going to talk about what now? Um, have you been surprised by what's unfolded in the last 24 hours? I don't know anybody who hasn't been um, surprised. I think even, uh, I mean, this is the worst case scenario. The, the sort of more optimistic or hopeful scenario was that this invasion would be limited to uh, the, the uh, Luhansk and Donetsk, so-called People's Republics, those two provinces in eastern Ukraine, uh, but they have obviously, this has obviously gone far, far beyond that to a full invasion of the, the country and evidently an effort to try to decapitate its democratically elected government. You spent a long time watching Vladimir Putin. Um, what calculation has he made here and do you think it can be changed? Uh, I think the calculation is that, over, you know, they'll use overwhelming force uh, that, you know, um, the United States, which is the you know, largest, most capable military in the world, can match Russia's um, reformed and very capable military, is unwilling to put boots on the ground uh, in Ukraine. Ukraine is not a member of NATO, wasn't even a candidate for membership um, when Russia invaded. 
Um, and so, you know, uh, we, if we're not willing to do that, then the best tools we have are sanctions and some um, uh, trade uh, restrictions, which is going to cost Russia a lot, but they'll take time to kick in. And so in that time, I think uh, that his, his calculus is that the uh, Russian military will have done its job and um, they will basically be burrowed in and begin to absorb Ukraine. With the protests we saw today in Russia, I know those may not last, but we did see some opposition on the streets today with clearly a fairly united Ukraine against the idea of having Russian rule again. It's just, it strikes me as something of a Pyrrhic victory for him if he ends up in what may look like, not to use a, a terrible a, a comparison, but what may look like Baghdad again for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, uh, you know, so far uh, the, the the cities that they have attacked have, have not been raised to the ground, and that was certainly a worry, and I guess we'll just see what happens there. Um, in terms of the protests in his own country, I actually thought your question was going to go in a different direction. Those are quite encouraging. I mean, uh, 50 cities... Um, across Russia, 1,700 arrests. So you can imagine that the multiple, uh, uh, you know, the multiples of, of that were on the street. So that's that's a lot of people. Um, they did, you know, the, the government did anticipate this, but and and my uh, own sources have told me that they, that you know there were um, national guard or um, anti riot troops in in um, some places in in Moscow. Uh, appeared before the actual protesters did. So, you know, uh, evidently determined to repress those as much as possible. But, you know, this there could be enough people in Russia who are waking up to this and, and beginning to call it the Kremlin's war, not, not Russia's war. And it is a big risk for Mr. Putin domestically, I think. We'll see how much repression he's willing to use, but can't shoot them all. No, agreed. And one of the things, I mean, clearly Russia's view of Ukraine is not one of a lethal, you know, sworn enemy. I mean, they've always, uh, I remember one of the things that struck me the last time I was in Moscow was that people kept taking us to Ukrainian restaurants um, or Georgian restaurants. Um, but there is a bond between those two countries. And one wonders whether Russians can be brought over, um, you know, can be won over that this is a just war if, if it starts to drag out. And there are people, you know, there are dead soldiers are coming, you know, there are deaths and so on. Yeah, and, and that will happen, of course. Um, but, you know, the, the most of the media is state controlled. So how much the Russian public gets to see that unless they see it on the Internet? And, and there is good Internet penetration uh, across the country. So some will definitely see it there. Um, I, that is, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of bond between Ukrainian and, and Russian people. Um, was something that uh, Vladimir Zelensky, the, the democratically elected president of Ukraine, did point out in his uh, his short speech yesterday, where he began in Ukrainian and then he switched to Russian and addressed the Russian people directly and said, you know, you know us, you know we're not um, aggressive, you know that we're not Nazis. Um, he, and he mentioned that his grandfather actually fought uh, for the Soviet Union in the Second World War. He himself is Jewish, so it is hard to be a Jewish Nazi. <laughs> yeah. um, but he's, he is also a, um, a comedian. He had a very, very popular television show called Servant of the People, uh, and that broadcast into Russia. So, you know, Russians will, will know him. It's almost I'm not quite like seeing Jerry Seinfeld or Larry David, but, but a little bit like that, um, his relationship with, with the Russian audience as well. We'll see if, you know, this makes any any difference, but um, 
how long Russian the Russian people believe this line out of the Kremlin that you know there's there are Nazis and there's genocide being committed in Ukraine. I think is a very very open question, and Mr. Putin may be, you know, uh, taking a little too much risk. May have gone too far this time. Do you sense that the sanctions that have been announced so far will do anything to put pressure on Vladimir Putin from really the only people who could effectively, uh, you know, put pressure, a lot of pressure on him, which is people around him? Mm-hmm. Um, so we we don't see evidence of that just yet, and this will take some time to kick in. Um, th- these are really very, very far-ranging sanctions, especially what was announced today, um, really unprecedented for especially an economy this size uh, that actually the Russian economy is about the size of the Canadian economy uh, geographically Russia is bigger than Canada but uh, it's, uh, it's the largest country geographically in the world um, but it's not a small economy um, and what they did today was essentially economic warfare it's uh, really dramatic powerful very um, aimed at, at the some of the biggest financial institutions in Russia, this is going to affect regular people as well as very wealthy people who uh, are, you know, have already been prevented from easily accessing any assets they have in the UK or, or in the United States. Um, so I don't think that the sanctions are designed to stop him, uh, but they may uh, uh, stop going much further if, if, you know, there is some pressure put on him either by folks around him immediately in his small circle uh, or more Russian people out on the street, which Putin really hates, does not like that. Um, but it's hard to protest in Russia. You have to be very brave to do it. But there are very, very many thousands of brave people across Russia willing to do it today. It, it was impressive. I, I've been to a Russian protest and I was, I was I, obviously coming from a place like Canada, I was shocked by how fast and how violently it was broken up, uh, or at least how methodically and violently it was broken up because there was nothing chaotic about it. It was very organized and very quick. Um, do you, when you look at the sanctions themselves, I guess the one thing that, that always comes to mind is where, is there enough dry, do they have enough left now? To continue, are there more sanctions to come if Putin goes further? Yes, I think there are more things that that uh, we we can do and, and will do. Um, the one thing, you know, one thing that wasn't done was cutting Russia off from the SWIFT um, uh, banking system, which is really just a system of communications um, to to basically tell banks to move money from one place to another. Um, arguably, and this is certainly what President Biden said. What they did was uh, was um, worse than cutting Russia off from SWIFT um, in that they sort of cut the money flow between, you know, some of Russia's biggest banks. And again, they controlling, you know, transactions for 80 to 90 percent of the economy. They also sanctioned Gazprom. Um, Gazprom has banks under it. It has media companies under it. Um, so it's it's pretty far reaching what what they did today. Um, they uh, we're also giving more support to the Ukrainians. Uh, I, I think Canada is doing the same, uh, giving them more lethal weapons to defend themselves. Um, you know, offering money and support and training for people uh, who end up coming into Poland and Poland has opened its borders. So I know a lot of Ukrainians are now trying to cross that border, they just have to get there. Um, and then we can we can impose more export controls 
certainly. And then we can, you know, prevent average Russians uh, and high level Russians from uh, traveling. I'm back with Catherine Stoner, a senior fellow at Stanford University's Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies. I'm just watching, uh, there's actually a live camera of uh, Maidan Square where those uh, protests were all held back in 2014. Sun is up this morning in Kyiv. Uh, there's some traffic on the streets, um, but the attack continued for a second night. One of the questions that's come up a lot, Catherine, of late is, would Ukraine be the end of this offensive uh, on Russia's mm -hmm. part? Or do you see any threat to neighbors, um, even NATO nations? Um, I think I, if I were in Moldova, I'd be a little concerned right now um, out, out on the western um, border of Ukraine. Um, the, there are Russian troops there in a, in a breakaway region uh, called Transnistria. Um, you know, uh, they've also had uh, some liberalization of their government in the, in the last few years, and that seems to be really what set this off with Putin. So that's a concern. Um, I think Belarus is, is already on, uh, you know, effectively a vassal of, of Russia. Um, Mr. Lukashenko, the president there, uh, uh, faced big uh, protests last year over um, uh, an election that was he stole basically he lost and then declared himself the winner um and so has become dependent on on putin since um and remember that that the some of the military was staged uh uh in belarus and then uh, has just come across the belarusian ukrainian border um but before that they were ostensibly doing exercises with the belarusian military and there have been reports of belarus uh that that military participating in what's going on in in ukraine so those, those, you know, two, I think Belarus is effectively gone. Um, Moldova, they're probably nervous. Uh, and then, you know, you think of Georgia, where Russia did something uh, similar in uh, 2008 with uh, South Ossetia and Abkhazia, two uh, republics within Georgia that Russia now occupies. Uh, they, they've done, it's the same playbook. They, they handed out uh, passports to um, uh inhabitants there who are Russian speaking after uh, occupying those regions. So, you know, Georgia is sitting there and theoretically this, this could happen to them uh, as well. Similar situation with their government. They have a, you know, an unsteady kind of democracy um, and uh, it, it, it not as, not as uh, highly pluralistic, I suppose, as Ukraine's, but uh, you know, they've got to be feeling nervous too. What about, I mean, there there are several countries. The, you think of the Poland's, uh, the Balk, the Balk, the Baltics, rather. Um, you know, Romania, Bulgaria. You, th you think of all the NATO nations. Uh, do you think that is that is a red line for for Vladimir Putin as well? Do you think he's that's a line he will not cross? I think it is. Um, you know, I I I think that the problem with NATO expansion has has been uh, weakening uh, potentially the Article Five commitment, which is. Uh, an attack against one member is viewed as an attack against all. And so there's an obligation to come to the defense of that member. And, and you know, um, in Afghanistan, our NATO allies actually joined the United States there because of Article 5. So that means that if Russia were to uh, send troops over the border of Estonia, Latvia, or Lithuania, those three Baltic republics, mm -hmm. or Poland and Romania, we would be obligated, that is NATO, um, to uh, view that as attack, an attack on us and then come in and defend. 
I think that Mr. Putin still thinks that uh, there's there's credibility in Article Five, especially when it comes to the Baltic republics, the Baltic states, uh, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, that have also been independent now for over 30 years since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, they were incorporated into the Soviet Union in 1939. So argue, you know, that uh, anyway, we would theoretically, yes, NATO would be obligated. I don't think he would risk that. Um, because I, I, you know, we, we, we may well send troops in and certainly we're sending more NATO forces to those areas and to Poland and Romania just to try to deter. Um, but if the Russians wanted to do that, certainly they could. Um, but, um, you know, there is the Article 5 commitment, which isn't there for Ukraine. As a last question, I mean, where do you think this stops now for Russia uh, at this point, now that you've seen what's unfolded in the last uh, 24 hours or so, what do you think the end game is here and how and can it be negotiated? I don't think so. Uh, I think the end game is to topple this uh, government, uh, to change the political system in Ukraine from democracy to uh, a controlled uh, political system uh, that uh, is a puppet of uh, Putin's government. Um, and I purposely want to say Putin's government because it's not at all clear this is Russia's war as much as it's the Kremlin's war. Um, and I, I, I think, um, you know, there is a possibility he may have overplayed his hand with his own people. Uh, and he's, he's really, you know, shown himself quite willing today to use repressive tools, as you mentioned at the, at the top of this segment, that mm -hmm. 1,700 people had been arrested and, and uh, most of those in Moscow 50 cities uh, protesting, that's pretty brave. And so we'll see, you know, if there are strength in numbers, if more people come out onto the streets, uh, that that may, you know, slow this down, potentially stop it. But I think the goal here is pretty obvious, which is to, to completely uh, try to absorb Ukraine. And Catherine, always interesting that your source is telling you that uh, that police were there before the protesters were. Uh, so yeah. that, uh, of course, these are being announced on social media, I believe. So that's how these rallies are being put together. So, uh, or at least these these protests. So presumably, police are watching those very closely as well. Catherine Sorter is always a pleasure. Thank you so much for your insight tonight. Thank you for having me. Earlier this month, Vladimir Putin traveled to Beijing to meet Chinese President Xi Jinping ahead of the Winter Olympics, strengthening ties between its main trading partner or with its main trading partner and reportedly coordinating their positions on Ukraine during a meeting between the foreign ministers of both countries that same week. Now, today, China refuses to condemn Russia's attack on Ukraine, instead urging restraint by, quote, all parties. China says it understands, quote, Russia's legitimate security concerns uh, surrounding Ukraine. So how important is that alliance now between Russia and Ukraine? How, or Russia and China, rather, how stable is it? Joining me now is Gordon Holden. He's Director Emeritus of the China Institute and Professor of Political Science at the University of Alberta. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you, Ben. I guess just from from a political scientist's perspective, uh, your reaction to what's unfolded uh, since uh, since late last night? Well, it's extraordinary. I think that um, few, I think, in the West predicted that the Russian military action would be as ambitious and thorough as appears to be the case. Um, there was much discussion about a more limited um, incursion into the most eastern parts of Ukraine. This is something rather more ambitious. I think Putin has taken his calculations and decided that he knows what the Western reaction is likely to be. He's prepared for it and is um, ready to suffer the consequences. But I was surprised 
at the scale and size. But if you're in a military operation, surprise and scale, uh, which Russia has the options for both, are, are a good thing if you want quick success. Clearly, China's role in this is a very interesting one. Um, what do you make of China's reaction so far to what's unfolded in Ukraine? I think China's been partially taken by surprise. I mean, it can't have been a complete surprise to China that Russia would act, but they've made very little provision for evacuating their some 6,000 um, nationals from Ukrainian territory. Uh, they were, the press spokesperson was saying today um, that the uh, Russians were not going to shell cities. Well, shell might mean artillery, but they've certainly bombed or used cruise missile attacks on cities. And I think that they, uh, they were surprised, as I believe, the scale. And I think that's really the um, somewhat flustered reaction, I thought, of the press spokesperson at the MFA, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs briefing um, in, in Beijing. I mean, I think they were asked directly whether or not Putin had given them advance warning that this was going to unfold uh, at this scale and at this time. Uh, I gather they had not. What would China have been looking out for? How much connect? How much communication would there typically be between Russia and China uh, for an event like this? Well, I guess my thinking is that even if China had been forewarned, they wouldn't tell us that they had been forewarned. It wouldn't be in their interest. But I think that, well, begin with, I think that specific military actions are unlikely that any military is going to reveal those uh, unless it's a formal ally. And even in that case, perhaps not. Uh, but I think that the discussion that Xi and Putin had at the beginning of the Olympics, uh, this must have come up. And I would be amazed if Putin did not indicate that his determination to act in some fashion, that doesn't mean necessarily a military attack. There are still negotiations going forward. Um, but I think that China may have clung to the hope that it would not mean a, a, a direct invasion, a word they don't accept. I don't think it's actually in China's own interest, and I don't think that they are pleased to see a whole front of, of um, instability opened in the middle of Europe. What is, I mean, one would suspect that Russia would not be able to go ahead and do this and sort of face the wrath of the West without some sort of tacit understanding or overt understanding with China that China would continue, would at least stand aside. Is that a fair assumption? I would tend to agree that the, certainly the Russians would want to make sure that, that China is not going to oppose them. I do accept the press spokesman, the Chinese press spokesperson's argument that um, Russia didn't need Chinese assistance per se. But they would want, at a minimum, some understanding and, in effect, neutrality and a clear indication that there was not going to be um, Chinese sanctions or that they were not going to join in a broad condemnation. I think they've got all those things. What is in what here is in China's interest then to uh, to not oppose Russia, to not stand with the rest of the of the United Nations Security Council, for instance? Well, I think that the um, uh, one could argue that. What weakens the West strengthens China's options. Unfortunately, I think that for China, uh, this has strengthened NATO and strengthened the Western determination to oppose aggression. Um, on the other hand, it's a demonstration. It pulls in both directions. It's a demonstration that, depending on the circumstances, the West and NATO will not intervene or use military uh, force where it would lead to the likelihood of war. I think that might be relevant even vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan when 
China can see that Russia appears to have a free hand to do what they want in Ukraine, albeit not without consequences. And I think that there may be perhaps the wrong lessons being learned uh, by Beijing in that case. What would you mean by that? What I mean is that um, one of the key elements, and I'm turning things a bit more to Taiwan now than the Ukraine, a uh, place where I've served, um, that is, that is uh, Taiwan and in China, of course, is that the U.S. has been deliberately ambivalent about whether it would intervene to defend Taiwan. American public support for defense of Taiwan is, is uh, not particularly strong. Uh, China, I believe, sees the U.S. as the last large barrier to its having its way with Taiwan, to reintegrating it into the, integrating it into the People's Republic of China. Uh, so you, uh, Western willingness to fight, it will be a factor in, in Chinese calculations. I admit that Ukraine and Taiwan are not precisely equivalent, but they are both at least potentially examples of, of great powers um, choosing to use military force against smaller countries. And I think in that sense, there may be a, an element of parallel. Would Taiwan be more vulnerable tonight than it was 48 hours ago? I would think slightly so. Yes, absolutely. Um, of course, China, inherently conservative in its foreign policy, in my view, uh, will wait and see how this all turns out. And it is too early to see how it turns out. If the Russian economy is gravely damaged, and I mean, China will be a very important part of that because China is the, the single biggest option for Russia, apart from the West. But if that Russian economy is heavily damaged, and if there are internal consequences uh, for for Putin, we we can recall that the war in Afghanistan was, it seems, a major factor in the uh, disintegration of the Soviet Union, given given Soviet public's weariness of war and the economic costs. So I think that China, given to calculation and cautious in its actions, uh, will evaluate what's happening in 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 Ukraine. But if it if it ends up that Russia has its way militarily without too much difficulty. And if it can weather the economic outcomes uh, that are waiting for Russia, I think that could embolden some of the hardliners in Beijing uh, to perhaps at some point, not immediately, but at some point in the future, choose to take similar action. One thing I've always found interesting. It's, sorry, we're now at the point, I think, where it's within their military means to do so. Sorry. Uh, sorry, one thing that I think that is often misunderstood is that all, they are neighbors, China and Russia. They're neighbors that don't have historically not much liked each other. Um, does China see an advantage here in a potentially weakened Russia in terms of the kinds of stuff it gets from Russia, energy and so on? I think a weakened Russia um, has some advantages uh, for China. Quite frankly, a disintegrating Russia, not likely necessarily. Uh, there's, you know, there's fewer people in Siberia than there are in Canada in an area that's almost twice as large, uh, there are still Chinese, I believe, who would like to recover some of those territories that they claim belong to China, to Qing Dynasty China. Um, I think that a weakened Russia is not in a position to drive as tough bargains uh, with China in terms of pricing for, for oil and gas and other natural materials like timber. So uh, if Russia loses much of its Western commerce, China would be their only really big alternative. To that end, I think China would be, its bargaining hand would be strengthened. 
I'm speaking with Gordon Holden, Director Emeritus of the China Institute and Professor of Political Science at the University of Alberta. When we come back, uh, I'm, I'm curious as to what this may do to, to at least strengthen NATO um, or at least Western um, alliances uh, to China's disadvantage. Uh, we'll be back with that after this. And I'm back with Gordon Holden, Director Emeritus of the China Institute and Professor of Political Science at the University of Alberta. We've been talking about uh, China's reaction uh, and China's potential reactions to uh, what's unfolded in Ukraine uh, over the past uh, several over the past day and a half or so. Um, one of the things that, that I mean, clearly, China has vast economic relationships with the West, with the EU, with uh, with the US, with Canada. Does does staying neutral or at least appearing to at least allow Russia to do what it wants, disadvantage China in any way when it comes to the unification that we're going to see in the West against this? Well, I think the the solidity that we are seeing emerging, at least temporarily, uh, in NATO is something that China will not be delighted about. I thought in the public limited public comments so far that China has been very careful to blame the United States, but to avoid blaming Europe. China consistently tries to drive a wedge between uh, Europe and, and, and the United States. And I saw some of that in their comments, in their comments today. Um, but uh, yes, uh, a stronger West that is more cohesive uh, would not be in, in China's broad interest. But I think while China uh, does want, does back Russia to some extent in, in the current conflict, China is not at the position where it wants to burn its bridges either to Europe or the United States. Those are two important relationships, important markets uh, with far larger economies than Russia. Russia offers energy and other raw materials, but the EU and, and, and the United States are at least economic superpowers. And I think China would be foolish and is not about to, in, their, in its calculations, uh, damage those relationships. I think it wants both. It wants to um, be with Russia and have Russian support um, in terms of its own challenges with the West, but it doesn't, that doesn't mean that it can't be simultaneously pursuing good relationships with Europe and, and the United States agree that that's possible in the current climate. That would seem to be a pretty difficult calculation as it goes forward. Do you think there is a, a quote unquote red line, no pun intended, a red line for China when it comes to this whole um, military invasion of Ukraine? Well, I think that you would see rapidly diminishing Chinese enthusiasm, should it go, enthusiasm is actually not the right word, tolerance, if it were to go, that is, the Russian actions were to become broader. Again, I believe that China has a fundamentally conservative outlook on international affairs, and they do not want generalized war. Uh, they want a stable situation internationally, economically, and even politically, where they can grow their own strength, where they are growing in strength relative to the West in significant ways. So a, a broad European war, uh, while it might tie down, it would tie down the United States to a degree that would make it very difficult for the United States to project more forces into Western Pacific, uh, I think that there the, would be net disadvantages for China in, in a bigger war. So I think they can live with, they may not be happy with an outright invasion of Ukraine, um, but they will go that far. But beyond that, um, and I hope we can all hope that there's not a broader conflict brewing. What leverage does China have vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia if it were to start to grow uh, grow tired of, of, of what's happening uh, in, in, with this military invasion? Well, I suppose one could see a, 
Um, I mean, economic leverage is is there in the sense that they can buy oil from many sources, um, Russia being one. It's hard to imagine them um, ceasing uh, purchasing or abrogating their contracts to buy Russian oil and gas. That would be something on that sort of extreme level. But even on the more modest level, um, overt criticism of Russian actions would be painfully felt in Moscow. Moscow has, I think, and that's why Putin's trip to Beijing before the Olympics was hardly accidental. I think he wanted to shore up Chinese support or at least neutrality. So if China were to start making public criticisms of Russia, uh, I think that that would, uh, I'm not saying that that would cause Putin to abandon Ukraine. I think he plans to be able to stay or at least until he, he feels it's neutralized it in a way that is in, in, in the Russians, in, in his mind, in, in Russia's interest. Uh, so I think that it's a, um, um, those, this, even just words of criticism, I think, would sting in Moscow. Actual economic sanctions or joining in Western sanctions are extremely unlikely. As a last question, I was just going to ask you, overall, in terms of what kind of impact we're going to see on the global economy because of this, we know what Ukraine exports, a lot of grain and so forth. Obviously, energy prices have shot up. Where do you see the impacts of, of, of this invasion of Ukraine uh, hitting hard in terms of the economy? And how will we feel it as Canadians, do you think? Well, I think particularly maybe starting with Canada, uh, this high oil prices will um, help Canada in the sense of oil-producing provinces, particularly Alberta, will benefit in the short term. Uh, for the rest of Canada, where all is eastern Canada, where all is largely imported from elsewhere, high energy costs uh, will not help the fight against inflation. Will accelerate it. Uh, it is true that we are more than self-sufficient in the grains that the Ukraine supplies. Uh, but um, uh, where you have a major supplier of, of grains uh, cut off uh, from the global market, prices will accelerate. So I think these the major effect will be inflationary. There won't be a, a direct or immediate effect on, on Canada because neither Ukraine or Russia are massive trading partners. But the global we have globalized prices for grain and for oil. And, and that's where I think you'll see inflationary pressures. And if those pressures are particularly intense, you know, Western Europe now has a real challenge in supplying energy, uh, particularly Germany. Uh, that will have a slowing effect, perhaps, on the European economy, which is a, a, a very large economy. I think the, an impact could also be um, sharply increased energy prices in the United States. Again, oil is priced in a global fashion. will have an inflationary effect and will not please the U.S. consumers as well. So I think there'll be a whole uh, outward spreading waves of influence, um, all negative except for short-term winners who are oil-producing states, uh, be it Alberta uh, or, or, or jurisdictions or other oil-producing countries will benefit in, the, in significant ways. But for the global economy, it's all bad news. Gordon Holden, thank you so much for your time tonight. It's a pleasure. Thank you, man. 